Hi there. Hi there. Welcome to The Bruised. I think this is episode five. We should know that. Yeah, that's right. I don't know what we're going to call this. Yeah, we're real professionals. Hey, but Lindsay's back. Hey, to all my people. Yes. <laughs> I'm I don't have to do this. I'm on my own. It's nice. Okay. <clears throat> so with this episode, there's a couple of things that we want to address. Um, I don't really know what to title it. The, the working title I've got is, come on, it can't really be that bad. Because that's no, something that, that's good. You think that's a good one? Okay. Yeah. Because that's something that I mean, I myself even thought about looking at myself. Hey, it can't be this bad. I've just got to toughen up. So, anyway, um, it needs to be said first off that this this is actually not a puff piece. Uh, looking for pity. The intent is actually to. Uh, to educate others and our listeners about a subjective yet real experience, a human experience that's actually not uncommon, but is commonly misunderstood. And if for nothing else, this episode's actually for my immediate and extended family, many of whom have already, already experienced similar life symptoms or will do so. My first person account of my own weakness, hopefully it'll It'll quicken their recognition of potential problems that arise in their own lives and help them realize even some anticipated advantages. Okay. Are you nervous? <laughs> Does it sound like it? No, you just look a little nervous. Well, I'm just not touching it. Yeah. Like <laughs> He's not nervous to tell I'm his tale. Huh. Just want to, didn't want to make it noisy. I'm banging oh, on the table. That's true. Okay, my bad. Sorry for the interruption. But I did look nervous. You did. You were breathing kind of heavy. <laughs> like you were just, yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Hey, I'm just here to make it flow. Okay, well, that's good. Good job, flow. So, any commentary on that? We could have family members with it. Um, I think my only commentary would be this is helpful for people that suffer and that have someone that suffer in their lives. So I'll, I think everyone will benefit from this one. Explanations, definitions, sweet, etc. Okay. So, um, mood disorders like depression, they're not experiences that people are easily sharing because of the character flaws that are often attached to them. And then obviously the inherent repression of that information then perpetuates the misunderstanding of the obvious and prevalent diseases that people have all over the place. It takes courage to actually share that which is ugliest about you. But at least for me, nothing inspires courage like the opportunity to enable a loved one's potential. So for, for those who may inspire potential, here is my ugly. <laughs> It's ugly, right? I mean, yeah, it was. It, it can be. It's beautiful ugly. <laughs> it's a hot ugly. So when I was writing this, I initially wanted to cover several symptoms in one episode, but I then quickly found that doing so wouldn't allow me to address important items that I actually felt needed to be, be given some, some good weight to. So I decided with this episode, we were going to address uh, two items that are related. First of all, dopamine and the reward pathway in which it operates. And then secondly, a term that's not commonly used, anhedonia, which is actually a core symptom of major depression disorder and was probably one of the most torturous things that I experienced when I was going through treatment-resistant depression. 
That was ugly. Yeah. So I found these actually a good starting point to explain how neural motivation works within all of us and what happens when that neural motivation does not work and how the two are connected physiologically. So it may get a little sciencey, and I'll use a few medical terms. I myself found the more I came to understand the definitions and the mechanisms that were going on, the better I actually could wrap my brain around my personal internal experience. And then in addition to that, when I would turn up to the doctor's office, it helped me to actually communicate, I think, better with the healthcare professionals. And it's, instead of using vague words like, man, I feel weird. I'd be able to communicate more effectively with things like, hey, doc, when I sit down for longer than a minute, I'm experiencing these restless feelings that I've never had before. Like I've got to shift my body every few seconds or get up and just walk around. I believe the term is akathisia, which is the general term for what I was describing. So with all of that said, I'll first dive into Anna anhedonia because realistically if there is something that we use we oftentimes don't actually know how it works until it breaks and you have to fix it so we'll talk about the broken part first and also in support of that point understanding the term anhedonia not only helped me better understand my emotional and physical condition but also it enlightened me to how a biochemical condition like my major depressive disorder impacts the human spiritual experience. Do you think that's right? Yep. I think it was helpful understanding the definitions for the support team too. It was helpful for me to know what was happening physiologically. Mm -hmm. So I actually remember coming on the word anhedonia for the first time and it feeling revolutionary. I remember you being super excited to like have an idea, like a name to whatever this was. Yeah. And a lot of this was because of the association, um, the cultural association with the term men are that they might have joy because that's such a big deal. And how anhedonia literally affects exactly that. So on a spiritual level, that was very enlightening to me. So a hedonist is somebody who's pursuing pleasure pathologically. Anhedonia is a significantly reduced ability to actually experience pleasure or joy. And again, like I said before, it's a core feature of major depressive disorder. So if you remember the commercials for the (laughs) antidepressants where they ask, right? We all are envisioning them in our heads. The sad lady in the corner. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, I feel like that all the time. No. You're like, I feel you. We're like some sad lady in the corner. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, they do ask the questions. Do you no longer enjoy doing the things you used to? (laughs) Um, Anyway, that's anhedonia. And when it becomes severe, it's torturous. So anhedonia is also thought to be associated with several other neuropsychiatric disorders, especially those that deal with some dopamine deficiencies, um, such as Parkinson's disease, uh, substance abuse disorders as well, overeating, schizophrenia, several others. And like all psychiatric conditions, the science behind anhedonia is not really well understood. It's obvious because evaluating the brain's activity is not like a normal, ordinary physical exam that you'd get for some other part of your body. Our current brain imaging methods are actually pretty brilliant, but they're still only able to provide kind of rudimentary information on pathologies of what's going on in the brain. Essentially the equivalent of, I hit this light switch and look, 
Oh, yeah. that's where that light turns on. Well, so. it's hard because even if they can identify it, it affects everybody differently, each individual differently. Correct. These are, they're unique. So on this point, personally, my baseline disposition is like a mild anhedonia, which is to say basically my reaction to almost everything <laughs> is like, eh, it's all right. <laughs> a stinking emoji movie. Meh. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, my kids will have some joking things around about this. Like they're like your perfect Disney character would be Chuckles the Clown. <laughs> Chuckles isn't even Disney, is he? Yeah. He's Pixar. He oh, Pixar. That angry, That's right. The, the angry, angry clown. clown. <laughs> um, for, for most activities, I'm merely attending um, because I felt obligated or mostly because my family's involved in some way. And watching my family experience joy is actually one of those things that elicits one of those few things that actually elicits a positive emotion within me. Hence, that's why I would go. But between the years of 2018 and 2019, the level of anhedonia that I had experienced um, changed. It became severe to the point where it became crippling. Uh, and in this stage, I rarely ever experienced pleasure from anything. Total numbness. Yeah. Foods, marital relations. <laughs> I was going to say, you can say it. Can I say it? Like, marital totally. relations. You can totally like that, say it. That was. Um, I'm not afraid to show her ugly. No, yeah, no, that is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it, Lens. All right. All right. Continue. So, but, but that's something we had actually experienced from the very beginning of our marriage is that with some portion of anhedonia, there had been some reluctance for, for sexual action is that correct i don't remember it being severe until the total crash okay but maybe i've forgotten i think i remember it i feel, I feel like we always kind of had that area dialed a little better we did okay so this is this is actually an interesting point about the anhedonia that experience so during the first couple of years of our marriage i remember feeling like there's sometimes where and this went along with the anti-feeling like uh oh yes anti yeah not really interested got you okay now i know what you mean um but, see it's good we're doing this podcast yeah. to explain yep so and there was a point where we had to work through that as well in that when I was coming out or was when I was trying to live to deliver myself out of the anti. And this goes along with anhedonia as well. You're looking for high stimulating activities. And so there would be cases where I was totally anti and then quickly just very within minutes, sexually aggressive, mm -hmm. aggressive. Yeah, not aggressive is probably not the right word. Sexual. The desire was there. It uh, was bad. very sexually desirous. Yeah. Right. And that was confusing for you. Yeah. That was hard. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, back to where we were at in 2018, 2019. Um, so again, anhedonia becomes crippling, affects all aspects of life. Um, and again, like I mentioned before, when it's obtained, it's usually only obtained when I would obtain it would be high stimulus activities. Realistically, I'm not one to use illicit drugs or to cliff jump or anything to that effect. No. So as far as high stimulating activities, actually what we would do is each <laughs> night we'd come home. I would come home from work. Um, <laughs> this is so awesome. And I actually, this is something that I'd, actu I'd actually recommend to somebody who's just, experienced this. I know, but high, high stimulating is a funny way to... <laughs> Is, anyway, is the office not highly stimulating? Yes. Right. <laughs> if Dwight can't make you laugh, then no one can. No one can. Nope. 
So we would come, I would come home from work, just absolutely exhausted, work with the kids, um, put them to bed, and then we'd watch The Office for like an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And even then, <laughs> <laughs> the stimulation that I got from that, I mean, it was the bare minimum. Yeah, it was, it was blunted. <laughs> yeah. But it was cynical enough that I could enjoy it. And we could do that together. Mm-hmm. That was a big plus. Yep. <clears throat> So basically, emotional blunting is one of those things that defines anhedonia. And for there, from there, again, like I said, it makes sense that people who experience these, the symptom of anhedonia for prolonged periods of time, they're going to, they will habitually start looking for um, high stimulus activities. And again, this isn't just associated with major depressive disorder, but anything that's associated with anhedonia where people who do suffer from that mood disorder They'll often exhibit uh, an increased risk for drug use, uh, pornography use, alcohol addiction, sexual promiscuity, and obviously other high-risk behaviors. I think this is important to note in that, realistically, I mean, you'll hear a lot of people, a lot of courageous young people coming out and saying, I've, I've had problems with pornography. And... Obviously, there's an uptick with that, with the increase of use of the Internet. The availability, there's an automatic uptick. Correct. But I'd, I'd also like to think, and I don't have any way to actually prove this, but that because of the stimulation that the Internet provides, uh, we're becoming so conditioned to just constantly constant being... Constant stimulation. Constant stimulation. That to not have something like that leaves us feeling empty. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you'll have this higher likelihood that you will de- develop mood disorders and a higher likelihood than that you would have pornography problems that go hand in hand with both. So um, one other thing that I found interesting when I was reading information about anhedonia, and this was specifically uh, interesting to myself because I was at the time, many studies have indicated that there's a significant relationship between someone with suicidal ideation or even those who attempt suicide and a high level of anhedonia. Because I remember thinking to myself, I will never feel happy again. And unless I kill myself, I've got, yep. I've got 40 years that I got to sit in this filth. So as I mentioned before, in large part, the symptom of decreased pleasure is actually associated with uh, low dopamine levels in the brain. That or the brain's actually not sensitive enough to, to normal dopamine levels. So as I use the term dopamine here, it's a general word that I'm going to keep using just to keep things simple, knowing full well that physiologically it's actually not accurate. There are other what we call neurotransmitters like serotonin, glutamate, epinephrine. There's a ton of them, but But dopamine is actually the major player in our discussion of anhedonia. So I'll use it as a general term here. And again, like I stated before, it acts as a chemical signal between cells in the central nervous system. And again, the nerd term for it is neurotransmitter. So the commonly known action of dopamine is that it feels good. Right? However, the total action is actually really complex, more than just feeling good. And so... To give it a full workup is way beyond what we can go over in a yeah. podcast here. That's more like postgraduate level yeah, studies that's type a whole of stuff. Thesis. However, um, really important, one core aspect of dopamine is that I think is not often appreciated is how it, is, it involves uh, what we call the reward pathway. 
And in this process, it accelerates progression from memory to learning and then from learning to consistent behavior. It develops our desires, our motivations and our learning skills without us putting even a grain of thought to it. But it's actually the way that it forms those foundations. That's what's worth talking about in a podcast like this. We'll give an example. So imagine you're a newborn baby. And suddenly see this object start moving slowly towards you. I haven't said what the object is. Why are you laughing? So imagine, so imagine this new, this strange object moving towards you. And then the object comes in contact with your lips and you're like, as the baby, perfect. That's exactly where I wanted to go. And this is where the, the nerd pediatric dentist in me gets to come out. But the most developed part of your body at that point in time are your, is your lips, your tongue, uh, basically your ability to suck. And that's, that's actually true because at about 10 weeks of gestation, right after your palate forms and your tongue, they can actually see in ultrasounds babies sucking their thumb. 10 weeks of gestation, which means that you have like six months plus in the chamber to figure out exactly how that works. That's pretty, that's pretty crazy, actually. I think it's that quick. Yeah. So the first activity that, or interaction that you and your mother might have would be to capitalize on that specific part of your body. That is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So you're stoked, you're stoked that the objects contacted your mouth and you start to suck on it. And this, this moment in and of itself is actually pretty interesting to kind of think about. I can only, the term I would use for it is like existence altering because up till this point in time, I can imagine as individuals, we've not experienced taste before. Um, but all of a sudden you get this realization of, Hey, there is something that I've not discovered before. And now I'm discovering it. I am actually more alive to existence than I was before. And then obviously there's a sister discovery that would come along with that. That basically there is more to existence than we had previously understood. I don't know how a baby really conceives that, but that would be fascinating. So when we get back to the object, you have an initial experience with this object that you act upon. And then in return, you actually experience pleasure. <laughs> basically, it's eliciting some, some dopamine to be released in your brain at that point in time. Also cool, even though you're not aware of it, the same feel-good act that's occurring right there is one of the few that's actually essential for your long-term survival. So again, in your wee brain, um, there's this cascade of events. You've acted on the object. The object has actually acted on you. And in reaction, your brain has re released the neurotransmitter dopamine. Basically this, I am alive type of a chemical, which I think is a good description of what dopamine yeah, actually does. That's a great description. So then it makes you think, how likely is it that you're going to actually forget that object and that sensation over the next few hours? Probably not. And that's actually one of the major jobs of dopamine is that it helps to solidify memory by associating with intense emotion. And of course, I mean, if you sit there and you think about it, this makes absolute sense. You're probably actually thinking to yourself of memories that you have. And most of those memorable moments are tied to profound emotions or to new experiences, which both elicit uh, dopamine in the brain. So again, dopamine helps with memory. Then back to baby you. 
After some time with the object, you realize it's actually not as great as you thought it was at first. And you even get to the point where you're like, I don't want it anymore. Thank you very much. And so you back off. And then in most cases, kids involuntarily start taking a nap. So an hour or two passes by. You start, maybe you spend some time in the arms of a stranger. And then randomly that object turns up again. And it starts moving towards you. And as that baby, quickly in your mind, you establish two thoughts. Number one, I recognize that. I know that thing. And number two, I want it. There's a, dot, there's a desire for it. And this is another significant uh, role of dopamine. And I think it's actually something that we give ourselves too much. We take for granted or maybe give ourselves too much personal credit for as it is an autonomic response. I was going to say it's totally automatic. But motivation is actually a huge role of dopamine. Because in merely recognizing the object, certain brain cells then release dopamine. And the dopamine in this case isn't serving the purpose to say, feel pleasure, though it does that just a little bit. But it's more to create this sense of excitement or initiative, like I need to do something. In essence, it's saying, start working or get your butt ready to put in some effort because your previous interaction with what you're recognizing resulted in reward. And that reward was worth the effort. And this effect is actually especially fun to see when babies get a little bit older, three to six months. And with this sp specific example, um, this happened with all my kids. Uh, I, we would start prepping a bottle of formula, and that would usually involve shaking the bottle at some point. And as soon as the kids, or <laughs> as soon as the baby would start hearing the bottle, their eyes would get seriously big. And this would happen even if the bottle was not in sight. Mm -hmm. And then they'd start move, trying to move their head around to see if they could actually get a visual, <laughs> a visual of the bottle. And once they did, then you get the fingers, the hands, the legs start kicking into okay. excitement. <laughs> Honestly, to the point where like, as parents, you're like, what is in this stuff? What addictive chemical. <laughs> anyway. It's the dopamine hit. So that is the, the recognition dopamine taking effect taking effect, motivating that baby. And it's basically an if this, then that. You recognize the objects, triggers memory of the previous reward, that triggers dopamine, and that motivates you to act with effort to then reproduce the reward. And from there, you can imagine how dopamine over time then enhances learning by increasing or accelerating the reward in response to adjustments or slight adjustments of behavior through repetition. I'll actually provide a reference for, I'll provide a reference for this on the website, according to this information, which is, in I'm notes. generally getting this information from. So the dopamine process is pretty similar to most anything else the human being interacts with, uh, not only just from objects, but also from interacting with people, what we would call socializing. So it's actually the same positive feedback loop by which we learn to eat, being the same mechanism by which we learn to appropriately then interact with others. So now, having talked about that dopamine reward process, imagine a condition then that, that compromises that or that creates a deficiency in dopamine or a diminished reactivity to it. Biochemically, this would be similar to a type 1 or type 2 diabetes where in place of insulin, we're talking about dopamine or our target cells are now in the brain. But based on the dopamine rewards pathway, a condition like this would probably show dysfunction in things like experiencing pleasure. It would definitely affect memory and attention. Motivation and learning, both academic and behavioral. 
So clearly, we are knocking on the door of attention deficit disorder. And although I have this myself, uh, please don't think I'm reducing ADD's complications to merely what I've addressed here. It's far more complex than, than I've covered. It is a difficult combination of biochemical and social science, and that's why many parents struggle to comprehend why the, why the one of their four kids actually climbs on top of the refrigerator when they're four years old. And that why that same kid during grade school has frequent visits to the principal's office. It's generally a hard idea to grasp that one of your children has a much greater threshold to experiencing pleasure or excitement or motivation than the others. It's difficult to quantify biochemistry's influence on social interaction. It's actually easier to see things on an all or nothing spectrum because the far more plausible explanation to a child like that is that that particular child simply just doesn't have any self-control. Because, I mean, who would not double fist ice cream sandwiches several times a day if they could? Who doesn't have an overall dislike for doing their homework? And who isn't thinking at the moment their alarm goes off? I'd like more sleep. <laughs> when you place sensitivity to dopamine on a biochemical spectrum, you begin to realize why the child does what he does. And I'm going to try to give a quantified example here, but more likely I'll just confuse everybody. And that's a risk I'm willing to take. So again, realize the numbers that I use here are purely to convey a principle. The real life values are beyond the simple story. However, the example used here is most definitely based on a real life experience. So let's say you have four children. Three of those children are dopamine average children. And one child, we'll call him Ted. He's dopamine resistant, which means the nerve receptors that react to dopamine are malformed in Ted. So it actually takes Ted more dopamine than usual to generate the same pleasure as a sibling, as a sibling with normal dopamine receptors. And in this example, for simplicity, I'll use a two to one ratio. Basically, Ted needs twice as much dopamine in his brain to experience the same amount of, of pleasure that his siblings experience. So with that set up, we now have four children. Inside the refrigerator are apples, and above the refrigerator, in the cabinet, are Twinkies. When any of the kids eat an apple, their brain then releases 100 units of dopamine. When any of the kids eat Twinkies, 200 units of dopamine are released in their brains. To simplify this again, we'll say the cost and effort for the three siblings to retrieve an apple from the refrigerator is the same cost of effort for Ted to climb on top of the refrigerator. And Ted actually thinks it's just as easy to climb on top of the refrigerator as it is to open the door. I know that mathematically doesn't exactly jive, but <laughs> just bear with me. My really dumb example, I'm only as good as my brain will allow at a given time. Anyway, so with all of that, for Ted to experience the pleasure that his siblings experience eating an apple would require them that Ted climb on top of the refrigerator and get a Twinkie. So that you, the parent, Walk into the room after switching the laundry or whatever. Three of your four kids are sitting there eating apples. And the one is eating a Twinkie. <laughs> to which you react, dude, what the hell, Ted? And who would blame you for reacting in such a way? Because it's, it's hard to compute abstract spectrum-related experience to such a cut-and-dry outcome of three apples, one Twinkie. Even if you do the math that quickly... 
how would you actually explain to those three siblings the pleasure differential between Ted and them? In the end, it's just human nature and often just plain practical to to think standardized expectations in moments like these. The amount of effort that it would take to properly process the situation and its consequences, both emotionally, socially, equitably, actually far exceed the importance of the Twinkie event. And that then leads us to the easier and far more practical conclusion that everybody experiences the same situation at the same intensity. Considering the Twinkie example, now take the same dopamine pathway principle and apply it to a situation where a person experiences no pleasure reaction to any stimulus within social norms. <laughs> like we talked about anhedonia. So that Lindsay oftentimes would ask me these following questions. <laughs> hey, Todd, do you want to come over? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Todd, you want to come over and watch the football game? Yeah, no thanks. Hey, Todd, you want to go to dinner with a couple friends? Not interested. Hey, Todd, do you want to go to Disneyland with the family? I'd rather be dead. But I'll go because I love my kids. And I like the ice cream. So having heard those social proposals, most listeners probably feel awkward that I experience repulsion towards those activities. Because to many, those activities actually probably sound delightful. Delightful. Right? Do yeah. they to you? Yeah. Delightful. And if they're honest, they probably don't consider my responses Christ-like either. But here's the rub. I do actually care that the people around me have positive human experiences, regardless of my own genuine feelings. So in most of these cases, barring an especially bad, emotional, depressive episode, I'll participate. Because I know that the social value of those interactions for those I care about, that overall outweighs my apathy. And in truth, that is a for sure Christly attribute. So that when you do see your depressed friends acting outside of their own desires, you should think to yourself, they're really more like Jesus than you think. <laughs> so how, hopefully you can see how those real life social cal calculations of individual and group desire quickly become complicated, especially for somebody who is compromised in, in emotions. And they're complicated to the point, they're complicated for everybody, I should say that. You're complicated to the point that to follow the calculations to conclusion would computationally outweigh the worth of the social interaction. So with that in mind, it's only reasonable that we as humans are programmed to nearly always assess experiences as equally perceived among different individuals. Because to do otherwise would cause mankind to become computationally catatonic. You can't process that information quickly enough. Or... Or it's going to send them the other way, making them like antisocial absolutists, refusing to contact any other human being because it takes too much effort. It's never happened here. Really? <laughs> That's cool of you. Well, it's happened here. <laughs> oh, you're awesome. Quick, separate, but related note. I do want to point out that in our culture, Christian culture, we actually do believe that God does judge according to the individual subjective experience. We believe that his accounting only considers what the individual has experienced for accountability. From the individual's unique reception sequencing of moral information, basically when they get what information and in what sequence, uh, their specific perceivable biochemical situational reactions. So again, somebody who might be be compromised biochemically 
or mentally in general. Um, and then I'll also throw in there personal understanding of social economics. Basically, how do I read social cues? Because some of us aren't as good at that as others. But in the end, Christ's atonement actually absolves us of, of everything beyond our capability to perceive and computate. Sad thing is, is we as human beings don't have that capability and when we're judging others. So it's important then to just state the obvious. The idea that everyone has the same emotional, sensual, and, and mental experience to any given activity, that's maybe the grossest generalization of all time. Such, such simple thinking is, it's lazy, it's stupid, and it's actually something that people have used for the justification for bloodshed over the past century. But on the other hand, taking to extremes, to completely disregard social standards to accommodate every individual's subjective whim, that's actually <laughs> supersized stupid. And that also has been used to justify bloodshed over the past century. And my point here is, is that life is hard and complicated. <laughs> well, for those who... For those who care, life is hard and complicated. Yeah. And it takes more than an all or nothing ideology to have meaning and growth. It takes guts to acknowledge our differences, differences within ourselves and our loved ones, whether it be emotional, social, biological, whatever. And even more so, it takes courage and endurance to find out the why, especially when that why isn't easily evident. But the difficulty of life isn't solved simply by appeasing those who are different or getting a free pass for ourselves because we have a weakness. Because even for the most disabled person, living life within, without any expectations will breed within them an entitlement. will relinquish in them responsibility and make them feel less of themselves. And in general, if nothing else, it results in like the equivalent of little kids in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. So it does take time and effort to critically self-analyze. The old Greek maxim, know thyself, is actually a nice way of saying, don't lie to yourself about where you were lame and how lame you actually are. And that's a hard thing to do. But only when we're honest and accurately assessed can, can we identify the adjustments that we need to optimize our progress. When talking about mood disorders, the great difficulty is their subjective nature. So that when first assessing a person newly depressed, a loved one often thinks, come on, it can't be that bad. To which then the obvious rebuttal is, you have no idea. You have no idea. And for the sake of time, I'll save the progression of self-assessment to actually a meaningful life for when I can properly address that. Yeah, it's a whole other podcast. Yeah, it's a bag of cats. <laughs> But I'll quickly say in short, you have to start somewhere. So where I would recommend is a place of open-minded honesty. Basically, that means opening your mind to possibilities when honestly evaluating yourself or a loved one. Doing that will allow you to create a more realistic expectation of effort for either yourself or for your loved one. And those expectations, most importantly, help to offset the emotional entitlement that we talked about earlier, which is actually the biggest hurdle to life's purpose of building character. So that we should, whenever possible, I think, encourage capability instead of entitlement, acknowledging, though, that life is brutal. 
but that individual human character has the potential to best whatever is thrown at it. And admittedly, when you or a loved one finds life torturous, that thought process is especially hard. It's far from obvious or evident that simple deliverance from emotional hardship comes at great cost of character. And I myself, not long ago, asked for immediate deliverance, wishing that it was just that simple. And from that request, I experienced gross disappointment as a result. But the fall created by that disappointment came with a gift of realization. Realizations that, by their nature and sequencing, make them difficult to relate to others. I've tried. <laughs> Usually takes about five hours. Mm-hmm. And it's a very long experience. And it's too late. Yeah. And it makes no sense. <laughs> right? You just get excited to tell the tale. Yeah. So now, <laughs> to relay some of those important ideas, I've created another God monologue. Again, addressed to myself. And of course, delivered slight tongue in cheek because I wouldn't do it any other way. That's... But it's still good for the soul. Yeah. All right. Should I do this in the Texas accent? Because it makes... <laughs> it makes it funny. Right. Not as heavy. Right. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. Here's your tongue-in-cheek portion. All right. Well, actually, there's a, there's a backstory to this. When I was working at a call center, <laughs> because of my monotone voice, I could not make sales um, at this... This was right when we were first center. married. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. I could not make sales because my voice was like, this is Todd. How can I help you? <laughs> your anhedonia voice. <laughs> but, but, your yes, meh. Yes. But I had a buddy right behind me, um, a friend that I'd gotten to know who... Uh, grew up in Dallas, Texas. This guy had a thick Texas accent. And so we'd occasionally start imitating each other. And I found that when I would try and imitate him, my cells would like <laughs> go through the roof uh, because I was using inflection in my voice. So yep. for that purpose, I'm just yeah, trying to so use. Meh. Yeah, because I'm meh. Yeah. Right. So I'm trying to do that here. So here's your debut. Right. Yeah. It'd be so lame. Oh, okay. All right. Hey, Todd. This is God. I got word that you're depressed. And you're evidently depressed to the point where you actually prayed for a deadly car accident. Is that right? Okay. Well, bummer, you know, because I hate to see you sad. Especially when you begin to think that I, Heavenly Father, am a bad dad. Because, you know, I don't really cope well with my children feeling disappointed by me. So I'm going to tell you what. Let's get rid of this depression for you. I'm totally serious. Let's just throw it away. Just let it walk away. Because realistically, when I sit there and watch you sit in church week in and week out, not because you enjoy the services, but only because you know you should be there. I don't like that at all. I mean, if there is one thing that bothers me, it's watching my children exercise actions of love towards me that are based completely on knowledge and faith. Because y'all know I prefer actions to be emotionally driven. 
All right, just kidding, man. You know, I like to tease you a bit. Truthfully, my favorite day of the week is Sunday. Watching you sit in church, just uncomfortable as can be. Only there because you, because of what you know, acting totally outside of your emotion. Oh, it makes me so proud. Stop it. Stop laughing. I'm here for you. Okay, thanks. I'm here. Okay. You know, Todd, I think, I think Batman, or maybe it was his girlfriend. It was somebody in a Batman movie once said, it's not what you do, but what you are underneath that defines you. And that's right. Because like what you do is not actually. Wait, wait a minute. I got that wrong. That can't be. I start. I messed that up. Give me a minute. I'm going to go look this up. Where is that movie? Oh, okay. Okay. It's actually Batman's girlfriend. And this is what she said. It's not what you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. That's awesome. I'm going to say that again, just to make sure I got it right. It's not what you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. Yep, that's it. Character's name right here, Rachel Dawes. Movie, Batman Begins. That's what she said. Got it right that time. And you know, now that I think about it, that is so true. Not that feelings are always bad, because they are good. But in a lot of cases, Todd... Humans get it wrong. You're only human after all. And me, the maker, I'm only as good as the material that I have to work with. So, actually, you should consider yourself lucky, Todd, that it's just depression. Because I just got back talking to someone from down there who has chronic hiccups. Man, be glad you're not that guy. (laughs) But back to feelings. feelings. Yeah, they're not as foolproof as as you might think they are. That's why I gave you all some reason. You know, the ability to critically analyze. Because feelings can get it wrong. They get in the way. And the truth, maybe you didn't know this, but feelings actually often distort the true level of commitment that my children actually have for me. Hmm. Okay. Sorry, I know that's that's a hard concept to wrap your brain around for an emotional being like you. That that feelings distort the true level of commitment to me. Let me see if actually I can I can dumb this down for you. I'm going to I'm going to do what I call allegorizing it. So, let's put it this way. Todd, I'm the ice cream man. And you like my ice cream? You like to come eat my ice cream? To the point where we've become friends and so much friends that you've actually proposed becoming my business partner. And so I go home and I ask myself, is this guy actually my friend or is he just interested in my ice cream? And I realize as long as I'm giving you ice cream, I'll never, ever really know. And more importantly, neither will you. So... I then decide to actually change up my product line and sell exclusively vinegar-based products. So that now anything that I have to offer you, it's going to be bitter. And when I hand it to you, you know that this piece of bitterness is from my hand. But you also know that you've never refused anything that I've ever offered you, friend. So will you now refuse my offering and go somewhere else? 
to get your sweets? <laughs> or does my friendship and future partnership mean more to you than a need for something sweet? For a need to feel good. Think upon that, Todd. Consider whether my worth to you extends beyond bitterness. Or, for that matter, whether my worth is even based on your ability to taste or feel at all. All right. Now we talk that through a bit more. I'm choosing to actually leave you with the depression. For now. Let's see what you make of it over time. I'm curious, and hopefully you are too. Curious to know what you'll do with the bitterness. Remember, Todd, it's not your experience underneath, but what you do with that experience that defines you. Are you crying? <laughs> no. I wouldn't dare. To which then I respond. Thank, thanks, God. I understand. But wait, wait. There's still ice cream in heaven, right? <laughs> anyway. So that's the podcast for today. Any any comments you want to make, Lens? No. My, your Texas accent is my favorite. Honestly, I think I can express a bit more. I was just going to say, you can express so much more in an accent. I need to just move to Texas and start practicing on it for real long term. Yeah. I'd be a better person. No, you're already a good person, Texas accent or not. Thanks, Lance. So episode five. Can't be that bad. Really? (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Peace. The guy with the hiccups? Could you actually really let me see him? That made me feel better about myself. <laughs>